Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel. Now, if you're a keen viewer of Jubes and Curd, you'll know that we started off with three, then we've trialled two, then we decided to stick with two for another night, but the pesky weather has had other ideas because one of my two is stuck on a train, long story short, so I've drafted in another one to make up the two. Anyway, the one that's stuck on the train is almost here, so guess what? For tonight, one night only, I'm going to go back to three. Did that make any sense? You still with me? Yeah? Good. Uh, we've got James Bloodworth is one of them. Uh, good evening, James. We've got Benedict Spence and Tim Montgomery is the one that's stuck on a train slash a taxi and, you know, he will be here shortly. James Bloodworth, <clears throat> you've changed your hair since I last saw you. I have. I've gone blonde. Uh, I wanted to see if it was true that blondes have more fun. And do they? Uh, I don't know. It's too early to say. He only did it yesterday. Oh, well, ladies and gentlemen, he's done his hair blonde. Uh, is it blonde? It's a bit, it's straw, straw coloured at the moment, but it's hopefully the sun, coloured. the strong sun will change if, if you're listening and you're not watching, you can't see him. It's like uh, an M&M look, isn't it? <laughs> Back in the day, has he still got blonde hair? m M&M, I don't know. Uh, he's about 50 now. Right? 50? He's probably grey. M&M is 50? No, he's not. He's in his 40s, I think. He's not doing well. He's ageing like the rest of us. Is he? Yeah. And he's great. Is he really? I mean, and as he, as he ages, great. his work gets more and more embarrassing, as older peoples do. So, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting people. phenomenon. That's he's sending a, him grey. Older, <laughs> older people. He's only 49. Like dad jokes, you know. But he's that's only 49. That's not old. I mean, he's not old. I think he's in the round. But, but for those of us who grew up and he was, always, he was like a young yeah. pop star, it seems... I mean, I'm always almost 40. I'm only a bit younger than him. But in, in, the rap like, well, game, he's 50, in the rap game, 50 is old. Is it? You're, yeah, I think you're over the hill when you get there. Over the hill, eh? Age 50. You're not Dr. Dre, it's Consultant Dre, maybe, at best. Uh-huh. Consult, right. Uh, anyway, I've got to be honest, uh, we massively digress. I'm not supposed to be talking about M&M or hair dye or anything, quite frankly. But uh, let me know, what do you think? Uh, this can be the topic of the night, actually. Never mind Tory leadership competitions and drugs and rape and anything else that we'll be debating. I want to know about James's hair tonight. Was your br- brunette before? Yeah. Yes, there you go. What do you reckon, uh, blonde or brunette? You can get in touch with me. Let me know your thoughts on everything tonight, but crucially also James Bloodworth's hair colour. All the important things I like to get into on Tubes and Curd tonight. Uh, you can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. Wayne says, thank goodness uh, you're back, Michelle. Um, they shouldn't let you have days off. I didn't have days off. I was ill, actually. I had a day off, but um, I was laid uh, feeling sorry for myself. I lost my voice. Some people might be very pleased about that, but it's back. Uh, I am back. What else? Someone's in touch with your hair already, Clive. He said it's not blonde, it's ginger. That's fine. I'm not prejudiced. He says that's fine. He's not. Gingers. Yeah, good. There you go. In fact, they're all saying that. Uh, Michael says, stop messing around, Michelle. That is not blonde. <coughs> it is uh, ginger. James says he doesn't care what it is. You like it. <laughs> you like it nonetheless. Don't you? John says, uh, Jubes, you're at it again already. Please, can you stop talking with your hands? It looks like you are uh, auditioning for amateur dramatics, he says. I'm sorry, I thought I was adding emphasis to what I'm talking about. I was, I was getting into it there, but I'll try and not talk with my hands, John, just for you. Uh, right, rather than hands and hairstyles, shall I get into what was supposed to be my top story tonight? 
the leadership debate. Uh, where are you on this? We're down to the final three, of course, talking about the next leader of the Conservative Party and our next Prime Minister. Got to be honest, I mean, it was pretty much predictable, really, wasn't it? Rishi Sunak is in, Penny Mordaunt and Liz Truss, they've all uh, made the cut. Kemi Badenoch, of course, has now gone. Uh, so the remaining three will go head-to-head tomorrow. And then, at last, we will know who the final two are. Just to give you some numbers, Rishi Sunak uh, got uh, 118, Penny Mordaunt, 92, Liz Truss, 86, Kemi Badenoch, 59. Uh, Got to be honest about this, really. I was a bit disappointed. See, Kemi was out. Um, Benedict, I'll start with you on this. I've got to say, I don't mean to be mean, but I don't think Rishi Sunak is going to win the membership vote. So it almost seems to me yeah. like a wasted place in the final. Um, I think that this is a, the final three is a triumph for mediocrity. Um, I think we had a number of particularly interesting and insightful uh, candidates. Uh, two of them went out rather early on. I thought Nadim Zahawi and Sajid Javid were at least interesting. I didn't think that they'd necessarily uh, both of them go that far, but I did have some high hopes for uh, Sajid Javid. Didn't make it. Kemi Badenoch, cer- Badenoch sorry, certainly um, has got the support of the membership. It, it appears to be the case. Sort of every poll with, that puts her head to head against any of the other candidates uh, would have had her winning. Whether or not that would have translated to the general electorate, I don't know. But if she had had two years as prime minister to sort of get her message across, get her face across, who knows? Um, what we are left with is a bizarre situation where Rishi Sunak, who I think is roundly unpopular these days, uh, broadly uh, in the country, is probably actually the best of those three. Um, I think Penny Mordaunt has not particularly covered herself in glory. She was you know, high hopes. Many people had high hopes for her, but actually uh, she stumbles a lot. She doesn't appear to have a particularly clear or interesting message. And Liz Truss, I think, offers absolutely nothing in terms of vibrancy or, or, or anything new. You know, it's a tired, rehashed, reanimated corpse of Margaret Thatcher wannabe is what Liz Truss is. And that might sound a little bit harsh, but even down to the fact that she likes to role play as her in Estonia, in Red Square. She wears the same outfit and she tries to do the whole thing of having the charisma what? and she doesn't. You're telling me that you yeah. think that Liz Truss is doing some form of role play when she she's, ba- she's LARPing. She's basically, she's trying. The, the, the Conservative Party, I know Margaret Thatcher is very popular because Margaret Thatcher was, uh, you know, a, a titanic figure in Conservative uh, Party history. But very much what Liz Truss is trying to do is ape that image and ape a lot of her policies. She's, you know, I'm... Not, I, I don't doubt that she that she believes a lot of these things wholeheartedly, but she is appealing to that wing right down to the fact that she does try to quite literally portray herself in the same way as Thatcher does. And if you don't believe me, just go and look at the fact that she wore the same outfit in the first debate as Margaret Thatcher did in her first hustings. It's really very see-through. And if that is the, if that is the extent of Liz Truss's you know, persona, what she's offering is just Thatcher 0.20, uh, then I think actually we're in a lot of trouble because a lot of people are putting it down now if, if it comes down to a final two of Truss and Sunak that it would be Truss that wins. And I don't actually think that the country necessarily needs that. What do you think to this, ladies and gentlemen? Um, Benedict reckons that Liz Truss is basically trying to role-play and pretend to be Margaret Thatcher, even down to the dress that she wears. Uh, when I've got nothing better to do, I am going to go Google dresses uh, of Liz Truss <laughs> and Margaret Thatcher and see uh, if their similarities are indeed there. But what's your thoughts on that? James, where do you stand? I mean, I think the Conservatives have perhaps learned a lesson from Labour's um, flirtation with Jeremy Corbyn as, their, as its leader, and also Boris Johnson. I mean, they, they, seem to, they seem to be opting for a more mainstream candidate instead of going for, for a kind of wildcard candidate. I think Rishi Sunak is... I mean, I'm not a Conservative. I don't have any kind of dog in this race. But I think Rishi Sunak is 
slightly more credible, even though I think he is unpopular in the country, because at least I think he's the one who's who's coming out against massive tax cuts straight away. I think he's being realistic when he says that, you know, it'd be a mistake to start cutting taxes now. The, the priority should be to get inflation down because that's what's squeezing uh, people's cost of living. Whereas Liz Truss has promised this massive package of uh, tax cuts immediately, which I think would be a, a disaster for the country. Well, I'm interested in what all you guys are saying as well, by the way. Um, Many of you, Chris says, I'm very disappointed that Kemi Badenoch is out of the race. Uh, he says, of those that remain, I hope Liz Truss gets in the final two and eventually gets it. You reckon that Rishi will bankrupt the country, whereas Mordaunt will make us more work than we already are. Um, right, if you heard a bit of squeaking during uh, James, it wasn't his hairdo, it wasn't his new hairdo, everyone. It was Tim Montgomery sneaking in. Takes more than a heat wave to stop you, doesn't it? Well, I'm sorry to be late. An hour and a half train journey became three and a half hours, so I'm a little Dedication, bit late, ladies so. and gentlemen, dedication. <laughs> well, you've just joined us, Tim, just in time uh, to discuss the leadership competition. Um, long story short, I basically, I basically think it was uh, a tragedy, really, that Kemi was voted out. Um, you don't really like any of them. <laughs> Benedict thinks that Liz Truss is trying to emulate uh, Margaret Thatcher even down to the clothes I've that she wears. I've just listening to Benedict. I have to say I agree. I think there's too much of a Thatcher tribute act taking place. Yeah. Really? And the tribute acts are never as good as the original. <laughs> so, but who, so, Tim, who would you like to see? Well, I think leader? I agree with you on Kemi, uh, Michelle, and I'm actually, I think the sort of Kemi and I think Tom Tugendhat were the two really authentic candidates in this race me. Both have now gone. And I think the choice facing the Conservative Party now, and I'm a committed Conservative, unlike James, is I think the choice facing the Conservative Party now is pretty poor. Uh, I think uh, what Benedict says about Liz is right. I find, I think it's um, Fishy Rishi, I think is the name. There's another, Dan Wooten refers yes. to um, Rishi Sunak. Yes, um, I've heard that. I think Penny Morden probably doesn't have the level of experience necessary to be Prime Minister. So I supported ousting Boris Johnson. I thought he'd become a stranger to the truth by the time he was ousted. But I'm afraid the Conservative Party is in a bad position at the moment. And it just looks like what it is. A party that's now been in power for a long time. They've been 12 long, eventful years. And I'm afraid the party looks tired and exhausted. And the next leader's task of reinvention is going to be an uphill struggle. Mm, there you go. What do you reckon to all of that then? Uphill struggle or what? Uh, tell me, by the way, as well, do you think that they were right, actually, to press pause on the televised debates? Was that the right thing to do or not? Labour, of course, was having a field day, wasn't there? Clipping up some of the criticisms of each other, the blue-on-blue -blue attacks. Did you support that pausing of the televised debate or did you want to see more of it? Um, I'm sure we'll have it to come, though. Uh, Alan says Tory MPs should all hang their heads in shame. Kemi could have been their saviour, but, as usual, they didn't have the courage Brenda says, I'm sorry to see Kemi leave the uh, leadership vert. Yawn. They're all so boring now and they will never win the next election. Jackie says, please don't let Rishi win. He was a useless chancellor. So mm. why do you think he would be a good PM? Um, do, um, do me a favour tonight, by the way. If you are indeed a Conservative member, send me an email and just make sure you put that right at the top because what I'm fascinated to learn is I have a little theory and I do not think that the membership base will put Rishi Sunak through. So I personally think it's a wasted vote. If I was Rishi Sunak, I'd look at that, I'd think to myself, 
I'm not going to win over the members, so I might as well step back, give my place to someone where there is a true uh, competition. I wasn't even going to talk too much about this leadership, but um, I will just ask you, Tim, what do you think is my good idea about Rishi stepping back and just leaving two candidates that stand a chance of the members vote to thrash it out? Why not? <laughs> well, look, he's not going to do that for a start, even if your advice is the right advice. He wants to be Prime Minister a great deal. I don't think the Tory members like Rishi Sunak ideologically. I think that's a fact. But one difference, one key difference between Tory members and I would say Labour members of the party that you know, James supports is Tory members like a winner more than someone that they're ideologically close to. And if opinion polls show that voters won't connect with Liz Truss, which I think is a real possibility, and they think that voters will vote for Rishi Sunak, I think there's every possibility that Sunak will win this. Now, he's probably the person I least want to be Tory leader in the remaining, uh, remaining in the race. But if I'm realistic, I think the Tory members may choose him simply for the reason that they want to win the next election and stop Keir Starmer and Nicola, uh, Keir Starmer and Nicola Sturgeon being the, uh, holding the balance of power at the next election. Well, there you go. Nigel's been in touch with me saying all of this is like selling your fateful old car and then finding out that you can't buy another one, which is anything like as good. <laughs> That's a good example. <laughs> he says, I'm a Conservative Party member and I am totally underwhelmed with the choice, or should I say lack thereof, available. We should have kept Boris. Cheers, says Nigel. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me until 7 o'clock tonight. Mixing it up a little bit tonight because we're supposed to have two panellists. Uh, one of them got stuck on a train. We drafted someone in to cover. Then the train boy made it all in. So long story short, <laughs> we're three now. We're all three. Well, we're four actually, if you count me. Uh, James Bloodworth is number one. Person, we, you are lighting up my inbox tonight. Everyone's going on about your hair. There's a, a unanimous opinion outside in the great nation. It's ginger. Uh, people are saying it's not blonde, it's ginger, you need to earn it. It's Boris and Johnson blonde. Boris Johnson blonde, <laughs> he says. And everyone's pointing out that you can get in the cinema free. If you're ginger, you can get into the cinema oh, free. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, so there you go. Once you've finished. <laughs> the heat once wave. You, yeah, once you've got the During the heat wave, but that finishes today, so I have to get tonight. <laughs> yeah, dash straight over. Get yourself a lesser square or something. Get in for free. Uh, there you go. Anyway, yes, I almost forgot. Train boy, <laughs> train boy, as I've been calling him, Tim Montgomery is here. Benedict Spence stepped up to the plate as well. Heat waves don't stop us, do they? Tory Sattler and Waldorf over here laughing at the one with the ginger hair. <laughs> yes. we, we, we miss out on it. <laughs> well, what can I say? Uh, that has been the main talking point there tonight. I have to say, Jim, his hair, although some of you have also been in touch as well about the Tory leadership. I'm convinced, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm convinced that people do not want Rishi Sunak. I've asked you to make it clear to me, are you a card carry member? Are you a Conservative member? If you are, would you vote for Rishi? And the short answer that I'm getting through is no. Um, if you are a Tory member and you would vote for Rishi, let me know because I'm fascinated. I don't mind being wrong but I don't think that I am. Uh, Terry has said, never ever would I vote for Rishi. He has shown his true colours and it's not loyalty. Jill has said, I am a Tory member and I would never vote for Rishi. Boris was good at his job, but they've brought him down. Long story short, I do feel um, that people have a sense that there was a bit of a coup. Mm. Um, I think there'll be some disagreement towards that on this panel, but do you know what? I'm going to move on from the Tories for a moment, if you will uh, indulge me. We'll come back to some of your opinions on that one before the end of the programme. But for now, this is a fascinating subject, I find. Anyway, a Premier League footballer 
uh, basically has been accused of rape. He was arrested um, for said accusation, but his club have carried on letting him play. He will be allowed to travel, he will be allowed to play. Jess Phillips, uh, who is the shadow minister for um, uh, domestic abuse, she's horrified by this. Uh, the Football Association has basically said the player can fulfil his professional commitments, including uh, permitted travel. Now, I kind of... Uh, the, the essence of what Jess Phillips is saying, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because it was quite long, is, of course, Cliff Richard. Um, he got accused of things, and you'll remember the helicopters over his house and all the rest of it. And it led to that conversation, didn't it, about at what point should a man be uh, have his anonymity removed or should a person, it's not always men, but have their anonymity removed if they are accused of rape. James Bloodworth, um, I'm going to stand, come to you on this because the Premier League footballer that's currently in question, he denies having done anything wrong, he's out on bail, uh, the club basically is standing by him for the moment, he's allowed to play, etc. Jess Phillips is horrified by this. Where do you stand on it? I mean, it's a very difficult question. I don't think there is a perfect uh, solution uh, to this. I think, I think most companies, if, if, if this person worked for most companies, they would be suspended just while the inquiries are going on. If they weren't charged, I think they should be reinstated. And if they were charged, then, then obviously not. Um, it seems to be multiple allegations. And I think due to the seriousness of, seriousness of the allegations, I think it would be reasonable for the football club to suspend them. I do think, however... I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about anonymity more generally in terms of the media because I do think there is a problem, as you mentioned, Cliff, the Cliff Richard case. Um, on the one hand, I see the argument from politicians like Jess Phillips who don't believe in anonymity because then I think you know, more, more potential victims can come forward if they see this person in the media. But, but I think there is a problem with people having their lives ruined um, with malicious allegations sometimes and then the media kind of catches hold of that. Um, it's, and it's not just in sexual assaults. I mean, the, I'm from Bristol and there was the case of Christopher Jeffries, whose name was dragged across the media um, with these lurid allegations um, in the case of Joanna Yeats. And his life was almost destroyed by that. So I do think there is a case for anonymity. But at the same time, I, I, I do think this Premier League footballer, due to the nature of the allegations and multiple allegations, should be suspended as someone working for a corporation would be. Hmm. So James's view, um, Tim, I'll come to you on this, but James's view, and I'm going to you know, put it in a nutshell, what you're saying is that if someone is accused of such thing, they should be suspended pending investigation. But I mean, yeah? I, think, I, I don't think there's a, there's, a, there's a blanket law on this. I think it is still down to the, to the company. If I was running the company, I would suspend that person while the inquiry is ongoing. That would be my personal decision. But I mean, that isn't the law. The, the Premier League com uh, football club's not breaking the law uh, by doing this. Tim, why do you stand? Look, I think there are three stages when you have a case like this. First of all, the is a stage of the accusation. Then if the police think there's sufficient evidence against that person, they will charge. Then, of course, you have to go through a process which might or might not lead to conviction. I think when you get to the process, the position of being charged, I think the police have then gathered enough evidence whether there is a balance of possibility that you are guilty. That seems to me to be the right time to publish this person's name, withdraw any anonymity, because then... At the James, point of charge. At the point of charge, because yeah. then I think for the reasons um, uh, James says, sometimes then other people, victims of this person, might come forward, which is a very important part of processing the case against them. But until then, we all know, once a charge like this is attached to someone, True, yeah. people, a lot of people think there's no smoke without fire, your reputation can be 
can be ruined. And I think we need to obviously make sure we have a system that does its best to protect victims and ensure prosecutions. But equally, the protection of the innocent is really also very important. Yeah, and I saw a story, uh, it was last week actually, uh, there's a woman in Darlington, just checking my location is right, and it is, uh, Teesside Crown Court basically uh, was responsible for this one. She accused her neighbour of raping her and he didn't. Um, it was all kind of made up. So she is now in prison. This guy, the victim of these false allegations, describes of how he had uh, his life ruined, uh, the estate where he lived. Everyone kind of knew about these allegations. And it is horrendous. But mm. Benedict, I've got to say, yeah. I find this a fascinating debate because I can almost see both sides of the argument on this one because um, rape is a very hard crime to prove. More often than not, there's only the two people that are there. Uh, so proving whether or not something went on that was consensual mm. or not is very difficult. You see that with the low charge rates. Yeah. But what is the right time? One says on allegation, the other one says on charge. Where do you stand? I think it's on charge. Uh, we've seen a number of footballers actually being accused of rape or sexual assault or similar offences over the years. Um, some of them have been convicted, others have not had charges brought against them. And the difficulty that I have is uh, if, if you suspend this individual um, uh, with, with uh, you know, there's, the club doesn't put out a statement about uh, an injury or anything like that, the player just doesn't turn up for a couple of weeks, it's incredibly apparent to everybody who that person is. It completely undermines the point about it being anonymous because everybody in the stadium and everybody watching at home can say, ah, oh, so-and-so is not playing again. Yeah, and there's been no word as to why that is. So that sort of undermines the idea of anonymity. Also, I think everybody would agree that whilst you've not been charged with something, you know, it, it, we're talking about people's livelihoods, but we're not just talking about the individual's livelihoods. You know, it, it's a team sport. It affects other people. You know, it, perhaps it depends on for the, for the club. In, the, you know, in this instance, the club has said that they're not going to suspend the individual. Previous clubs have suspended individuals. It might be that the club perhaps decides that this person is too important to their overall performance. Now, that's not how these things should be decided. But we do need to remember it's a it's a multi, multi-million pound business. There's a lot riding on these stakes. And if you're a football club and you're sat there, you're going, well, OK, it's just an allegation at this stage. I can understand why they'd be saying, well, actually, we're not going to suspend this person because it could turn out to be absolutely nothing that's worth pursuing, and we potentially could suffer as a result of that. So this fellow, I mean, is, I mean, you touched on the multiple allegations. Just to be clear, obviously this person's not being named and he denies all this, but long story short, he was uh, arrested for uh, a rape earlier this year. Then whilst he was in custody, he was essentially arrested again for another two rapes of a second person. So that's where we're at. Mm. Alleged rapes, I've just had it in my ear. Mm. I've got to say the word alleged, and I will repeat myself that he has, of course, denied all of this. But I just find this absolutely fascinating because one of the conundrums is, like I said, because it's hard to prove a rape, when you don't, if you don't make it public, which I'm not in favour, by the way, I don't think that, I, I don't think I should be able to say something about you and then your reputation yeah. is instantly put out there as a potential yeah. rapist before it's even been proven. So I'm on the f side of the fence about actually your anonymity uh, being accused should be respected. You should be kept out of the public eye from that perspective. But then say, for example, uh, I don't want to say you because I don't want to make it don't about mind. you. I'm, 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 I'm fine. A person, a person <laughs> is indeed a rapist and in fact is a serial rapist. Mm. If it was known... Um, if it was known from the off that actually this person has been accused of this, 
then you do stand more chance of yeah. other people going, well, he did it to me, he did it to me, he did it to me. And then you get the charge. Whereas if it was just you and you're hidden away, you might not get that charge. And I, I think that's why probably there can't be hard and fast mm -hmm. rules here, because I think this point you've made, James has made, about multiple allegations does begin to tip the balance against that person. And if a football chief, football club executive or someone else is faced with well, this isn't just one charge. These are the, you know, this is the other evidence. I think you have to begin to use your judgment. And if someone does look um, that, that they may be seriously guilty of an offence, then I think you know we have to use, you know, have to count upon the wisdom of leaders of the organisations in question. But you know, just back to what you were saying earlier, Michelle, um, without going into details, you know, I have um, a friend involved in a dispute with their neighbour in Salisbury at the moment, and their neighbour has just out of no, for no basis at all, call them a paedophile. And there are, what we do have to accept is that there are people in Britain who are very wise to using malicious allegations to damage the reputations of people they're in a basic dispute with. And so this is different, I think, because of those multiple allegations. But let's not get away from the fact that whereas there are horrible rapists in this country, there are also people very capable very of making malicious allegations. Well, well. I, I've got goosebumps uh, at the moment because I've just seen an email pop up on my screen and I shall keep your name, your name anonymous. Uh, but what you're saying, this is a viewer email, over 20 years ago, after splitting from my ex, she accused me of molesting my son. This is literally making me go goosebumpsly. Long story short, it was proved beyond any doubt that she had lied, but these accusations destroyed my life entirely. I lost my job, my home, literally everything because of the stigma of simply being accused. I had to leave my hometown, leave behind my family and my friends and having to start all over again of something that was basically proven to be a lie. And that makes me goose pimply because, you know, there can be people that are vindictive. Maybe their partner has met someone else or cheated or whatever. And because that person is hurt, to get back at them, they do often uh, make up things like this, which is why I'm in favour of anonymity. But I can see the flip side, which is that if someone is a rapist and it's hard to prove, if they have been doing this left, right and centre, that would only ever come out if that name was known. So it's a real tough one for me. Yeah, I think, I think with this specific case, I think there's also a duty of care on the part of the football club to female members of staff. Because we think of football, we think of it, you know, a, a male-dominated game. But these clubs have extensive female uh, staff behind the scenes in the, in the, in the, in the, in the background. And it, I think when there are multiple allegations, I think if I was chief executive of the football club, I do think there is an an obligation to ensure their safety as well. Um, and th but uh, that, that is obviously horrible to hear about. There are malicious allegations about uh, around as well. But I, I mean, this is why it's difficult and there can be no hard and fast rule with these cases, I think. Well, lots of you guys getting in touch, uh, saying that you all believe pretty much in innocent until proven guilty. Someone else says, would you suspend them if you were having to pay 150 grand a week to keep them off work? But really, is it a monetary thing for you, the person that's just written there, Bernard, I think it is? Is it really a monetary thing? So you're telling me, I don't know, if it was a cleaner or something, on minimum wage, you'd be OK to suspend that person. But because it's a higher earner, you wouldn't. Is it finances that would make your decision on that one? Uh, not so sure about that. Um, again, most people are saying you're innocent until proven guilty. You should not be suspended until charged. Christine says... <clears throat> 
Suspending people at the point of allegations simply opens the floodgates to anyone uh, with a grudge to accuse you of anything. Barry says anonymity should be afforded to everybody until proven guilty. Uh, Yorkie says we need to know rapist names as it turns out, uh, in case it turns out they've, or, they've done it before. Uh, Yorkie, let me ask you this though. You're saying we need to know rapist names. You're, you're concluding then that at the point of an allegation, this person is a rapist. This is what you're saying. You need to know these people's names. But at what point? Because if I make an allegation against you, should your name be made public? I've just read you out the reader there, the, the viewer there, who's explained their life was absolutely devastated because of an allegation that was since proven to be untrue. I've just mentioned to you the case last week uh, of a lady in Darlington who accused her neighbour, male neighbour, of raping her. His life was destroyed. It turned out it was found in a court of law she'd made it up. So, I mean, it's a fine, it's a fine line, isn't it? Valerie says, simply this depends on the profession. Anyone that's in closer contact with the public, health workers, the police, uh, social workers, etc. Is it? Is it a profession thing? Uh, I don't know. Should a professional footballer be treated differently to a cleaner? I don't know why I'm picking, the, picking on the cleaners, but uh, you tell me. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one for this. Um, lots of you still emailing in about James's hair. Uh, lots, of, <laughs> yeah, lots of you. Uh, I've also just got uh, a message tonight with some very bad news, ladies and gentlemen. I was going to have Chinese takeaway tonight, and I think because of the heat wave, it's closed. That's appalling. I'm going to have to take a break just to reflect on that alone and compose myself. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company tonight. I've explained the story already. We're supposed to have two, but we've got three. It's a long story, so I won't bore you with it again because Martin's emailed in saying, Michelle, you talk for too long, get to the point quicker, so I won't even tell you the story again <laughs> about my panel. I'll just tell you, we've got James Bloodworth, uh, we've got Tim Montgomery and Benedict Spence. Uh, keeping me talking in the break just then was some story about my Chinese takeaway that the, the gents were asking me. Uh, can't you just go to a different Chinese takeaway? And I was explaining, yes, I can. Uh, my Chinese takeaway is closed tonight. I'm very upset about this in case you've just tuned in and wondering what I'm talking about. And I was explaining there's a big difference between Chinese. Not all of them are up to scratch. I judge it all on the prawn toast. Is there a layer of prawn on the toast or not? It's <laughs> a very critical point to me. Tim was explaining uh, his measure of a good Chinese is a hot and sour soup. Ken has got in touch and said, what are you talking about Chinese for? In this weather, you need a vindaloo and a lager. Uh, anyway. Agree on the lager. I'm not so sure about the vindaloo. There you go. Vindaloo. Who eats curries in this kind of weather? It's too hot, isn't it, for a spicy curry? Anyway, yet again, I digress. Nigel Farage is keeping us company at 7 o'clock. Nigel, what have you got for us? Good evening, Michelle. A couple of things. Firstly, the one insurgent, the one person with fresh ideas, has been kicked out of the Tory leadership contest. I will ask my audience, are you inspired by the choice of three? I'm not. If I was a Conservative member, I'm not even sure I could bring myself to vote. And the fire in Weddington, right down there in East London, would have a reporter on the scene as fires break out all over the country. Are we in a fit state to cope? Mm -hmm. I've got to say, the short answer to that question is no, if you ask me, Nigel. But nonetheless, we'll look forward to that. Uh, I'll see you at seven o'clock. Are we in a fit state uh, as a country to cope with the heat waves? I say no. What do you reckon to that? Get in touch, let me know. But let's talk pay, shall we? Uh, figures released today have showed that real pay uh, is falling at its fastest rate since 2001. Um, what do we even mean when we say real pay? Is there any difference? Real pay? 
Inflation adjusted, is that what they mean? Yeah. Yeah, anyway, pay was down nearly 3% from a year earlier when adjusted for inflation. Uh, long story short, it means that people are working a full time job and yet can't afford to make ends meet. So then, of course, there's this big focus then on in work poverty is becoming a big thing. Um, when we talk about this, there's a couple of different thoughts here. One of them is just give everyone a pay rise. Is it that simple? The other side of it, when we talk about making ends meet, do we just need to readjust our ends? Are we expecting too big a things from life? James Bloodworth, you went undercover, didn't you? This is your kind of forte, all this kind of um, topic. Tell me, where do you stand on this working poverty? I mean, working poverty, it isn't new, but it's obviously getting worse because inflation is, is so high. So in 2016, I went undercover at in many low-wage jobs in, in the UK. And yeah, you had people working working very hard, but then they were still struggling to make ends meet. And then the taxpayer was basically having to top up their top up their wages. This is also happening because the cost of childcare is, is very high in this country. So you have people who are having to work part-time and look after children the rest of the time, and then they don't have enough money to make ends meet. So they have to get claim things like tax credits. And also the cost of rent, because there hasn't been sufficient uh, homes built in this country, for example. So the cost of rent, the cost of getting a mortgage is very high. Um, therefore, we're subsidising rents with with benefits in, in but what do you think with housing benefits. What do you think is the definition of poverty these days? Well, I mean, real wages have have gone down because it, it simply means you know if I if I if I receive a five percent pay rise, but inflation goes up by ten percent, I haven't actually received a pay rise. So I'll have less money. Yeah, but are you poor? Year. Well, it, it depends. I mean, lots of people in this country there are below the poverty line. I mean, we've seen since in the last nine years, in the last um, yeah nine years, only the top 1% has seen their pay uh, keep up with inflation. Um, so yeah, many of these people are poor <coughs> and, there's the, and they're having to receive tax credits and the state's having to pick up the tab for employers in many cases. So I worked at Amazon, which is headed by the richest man in the world. It's the biggest multinational in the world. And you had people from there uh, claiming tax credits from the state because they're not being paid enough. That is a, a fundamentally... Um, unjust situation. And I think also productivity is part of this as well. So you, we have very poor productivity in the UK. Um, and this is one of the reasons why companies are not paying staff more. Tim, what do you say? One thing before I would say, James and I are on the opposite sides of the political equation, but his book is a brilliant book. It's a real interesting, fascinating, detailed examination of how some of these big firms do mistreat What an endorsement. So, what a no, great Tim's, endorsement. Tim's endorsed it previously. I mean, no, I really we, think it's, we're on it's a similar page on this topic. It's a great, it's a great book. Look, I, I, I think there are no short-term <laughs> solutions to this problem. I think what there has failed to be, particularly since the Brexit vote, people obviously voted to leave the European Union, but I think they also voted at that time for a big reset of the economy. And we haven't had that. So one of the things I would have liked a Conservative government to have done, for example, would be to cut a lot of university spending, which I think is way too excessive, and spend an awful lot more on lifelong learning and retraining for people to have the technical skills that they need to get really good jobs, to have the sort of jobs that would pay well. For the moment, there's only short-term things we can do, like cut energy bills by axing some of the ridiculous green levies that I think we have in the UK. But the long-term is we have to reskill our population with lifelong technical education. We send far too many people to university and we send far too few people to technical colleges. But then who does the non-skill, and I'm trying not to be offensive in what I say, but who does the lesser skilled roles then if you're busily making everyone technically skilled? Machines, and unfortunately. You know, more and more of this work is going to be automated. And so with more and more work automated, <coughs> we have to ensure that the rest of the labour force have the skills for the new jobs that are going to come in, 
on stream. Now, some of them, they won't be technical, all engineering. Some of them will be, you know, masseurs and sort of you know, beauty, sort of some of the more lifestyle caring services that are going to become more important as a lot of richer people, you know, want to buy those sorts of services. So we don't have to assume that everyone's going to be in you know, a woodwork or whatever. It's going to have to be um, an inventive strategy. Benedict Spence, where are you on it? Uh, Sam Ashworth Hayes wrote a very good piece about productivity in the UK and The Spectator uh, over the weekend, uh, basically talking about how the British state now exists to put a break on growth in this country. And uh, as Tim says, there's no quick solution, there's no quick fix to any of this. But solving the productivity crisis that we have in this country would uh, go a long way towards that. And that will mean, as, again, as Tim said, you know, Brexit was about not just leaving the European Union, it was about fundamentally changing the nature of our, our politics and our economy. It would uh, require reform that, sadly, the Conservative Party doesn't really particularly seem interested in doing. Uh, but it would mean, you know, cutting red tape. And it affects all sorts of different things, uh, from house building to infrastructure to education. Ultimately, our state moves very sluggishly. It actively prevents there from being growth. And through that, that's how it is that we all end up getting progressively slower. Uh, two very good examples that uh, Sam made was that we would be the 49th poorest state in the United States, were we in the United States, wow. and that Poland's economy is going to overtake us in the next 20 years. Now, you know, Poland's economy is also likely to overtake Germany's in the next 25 years. That's also an endorsement of Poland. But that's the point. Poland is, uh, is a country that is run on significantly less red tape and a lot more sort of industry. Uh, I suppose if you might put it broadly, it, it's good at making things. It's good at, you know, sort of uh, working from the ground up. Whereas this country, ultimately, it, it, it exists for rent, it, it, it exists for older people. You know, it's big on uh, welfare politics rather than sort of creative uh, politics. It's not really interested in sort of turbocharging the economy. It's more interested in sort of inoculating us all against shocks and things like that, which is why I think, you know, for example, we spend so much money on our health service compared to, say, our education uh, system. You know, that's where the priority is. It's about keeping people sort of in their little stasis. It's not about actually making things any better. And I think that's ultimately how you're going to solve uh, increasing poverty in this country, uh, is by fundamentally changing the nature of the state into one that is a lot more aggressive in pursuit of growth. Okay. See, I, I want to come back in a second to what we mean by poverty. I do want to just revisit that point, but just some of the viewers have been in touch. Martin says, Michelle, I've earned £21,000 a year for the last 11 years, and I can still cope fine. Uh, with the cost of living. So I think the sentiment there is about it's how you cut your cloth, basically. Dave says, I earn £10 an hour, I'm single, and I'm struggling to keep a roof over my head. When I add in the cost of prescriptions, opticians, dentists, council tax benefits, uh, handouts, uh, then I subtract all of that from my monthly wage and worse off. He says, it's not even worth me working. What do you mean? What, what benefit handout costs have you got? Um, I'm confused by that, but uh, Dave, I think you make a, a good point there. What you're saying essentially is, is it worth me working? And I think as a society, that's a real fine line we've got to tread because I do personally believe in the welfare state for those people that can't work. I think if you can't work because you're, I don't know, ill or whatever, there should be a, a welfare state that supports you. But I think it should always financially be more, uh, well, you should be better off if you work as opposed to choosing a life of benefits. You tell me what you think. There's a sentiment coming in here as well. Andrew says, as an ex-employer, I don't think people should get pay rises in line with current inflation. After all, when inflation drops back down again, would all employees accept a corresponding pay reduction? That one's come through quite a lot, actually. Should people 
be receiving money to match today's inflation rates? Um, and if so, what happens when the costs of things come down? Do you think they would? Uh, can you imagine a scenario where, I don't know, say I'll become a Chinese takeaway, actually reduces their costs again? I'm not so sure. Samantha, this is a big point that people are coming on. What does poverty mean? Um, Samantha says, why don't people get rid of the iPhones, stop smoking, reduce socialising? Uh, you don't have to go on holiday. You don't need to buy new clothes all the time. Um, and by the way, people should stop having a go at other people who've worked hard to earn good money. Politics of envy, she suggests. Where do you stand on that, James, in terms of when we talk about poverty? Because there are different definitions nowadays about what poverty means. And I think there is a sense among some people, which is, well, people have got iPhones, they have holidays, they do this, they do that. So that's not poverty. Well, I mean, if you anyone who doubts that there's poverty in the UK wants to come down to Bethnal Green, where I live, and look at the, the state of the, the, the high street there now, the, the, the num sheer number of homeless people that there are now compared to 10 years ago, say the squalor, the, the number of people who are one paycheck away from being evicted from their, from their flats. I mean, the statistics are clear. Absolute poverty has, has risen What's in the UK. What's absolute poverty? Well, absolute, there's a definition of poverty if you have below it. I can't remember what the, the exact figure is. So there's relative poverty would be saying, you know, you might say if you don't have a uh, certain thing compared to someone else, you're poor. But absolute poverty is, you know, you're struggling to feed yourself, that you're needing to use a food bank, for example, things like this. That has increased, and, and it's not really surprising at the moment when inflation is so high. Um, sorry, one of you was well, going to speak. I had an intake of breath <laughs> to my left then. Who was it? Well, I'm looking for consensus again amongst this group. We were agreeing a lot this evening, but one of the things that I think we must do and where Britain is very bad is just housing. One of the reasons why we're falling behind most other people in Europe is we just don't build enough houses. So for the wage that you earn, the percentage that is taken up by just living expenses is so much greater than the European average. If we really built enough houses for people, we really would begin to tackle this basic poverty problem. And then if we added on top of that, that we actually built houses, perhaps even social housing, near to the extended family, because the extended family looks after you in a way that government doesn't measure at the moment. My own parents have moved near to my sister. They've looked after my nephew. The care that they give to my nephew, the care that they get back is huge. It's not measured right, by the well, state. Go, it's everyone. not appreciated. Look um, at the time. I've just noticed the time. So Tim can tell me his family story in a minute. I'm going to move myself and my kid next to uh, your family. They're so, they're so fantastic. They look after all the kids. That's what I say. Uh, anyway, you've just touched on a nice point, Tim, because uh, starting from Friday, actually, this week, we're going to be doing a series of Fix the Nation. We're going to get into the big issues in this country and look at how do we fix them. Housing is one. Immigration is another. Cost of living is another. So a nice tee up for that, Tim. Thank you very much to my panel tonight. Thank you as as well for your company at home John's been in touch saying I like it when you're real Michelle it takes the edge off your accent <laughs> lovely have yourself a wonderful <laughs> evening guys I'll see you tomorrow <laughs>